We're looking to Psalm 84 this morning as part of our continuing series centered on the Psalms. It's on page 493 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and it's also printed there for you in the bulletin. I think this is the first Psalm we're doing in this series that is not ascribed to David. Is that right? You can see right at the beginning, it's a Psalm of the sons of Korah. And if you're taking notes, maybe you want to make a note to read later for yourself. Uh, In the book of Numbers, chapter 16 and 26, it tells us the story of Korah. Uh, But the short version is he led a rebellion against Moses out of envy. And he and his followers were literally swallowed alive by the earth. So they became a warning to all of Israel and all who heard it. Uh, Yet the sons of Korah were spared, and his descendants continued to perform the duty of their tribe of Levi, which was to serve God as priests. So follow along as I read this psalm, Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray and ask God to show us more of himself this morning in his word. Pray with me. Father, you are the living God and this is your living word. And I ask that you would be with me and be with all of us as we strive to understand it, we ask that you would bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever hear people say that they're blessed or so blessed? It's a term you used to hear more in exclusively churchy circles, but it's in full effect just everywhere. Hashtag blessed. In fact, I ran a search on Instagram for hashtag blessed, and there were almost 74 million uses of it. And people type it under their pictures for nearly everything, new cars, good friends, but especially selfies. They turn kind of sideways to the mirror so everyone can get a good look at everything, and they take a picture in the mirror, and they snap a picture of themselves, or they're wearing a bathing suit, or they're just smiling at the camera. Hashtag blessed. It can be pretty narcissistic. The words thankful and blessed, they get just thrown around pretty much as a short way of saying, I am very happy right now. Without a thought about whom 
we should be thanking or who has blessed them in the first place. But we're all guilty of this. We glory in our accomplishments and our relationships or our possessions without acknowledging the giver of all good things. It's easy to do that. During our journeys, we easily forget God and his blessings. But as we'll see this morning, we must continually seek God, dwelling in his presence for true blessing. Now, before we really get into it, I want to confess something to you. When Mark asked me to preach this month, and I found out we would be in our psalm series, I owned up to him that the psalms are kind of hard for me. I really love songs, and I really love song lyrics, but never have I ever curled up on the couch with Emily Dickinson or Robert Frost. That's just not something I do. And so maybe you relate to that. If, you, if you're not partial to poetry, your tendency may be to kind of gloss over the Psalms as nice, flowery, seemingly random and disjointed verses. And I'm sad to say that that is often the way I have treated the Psalms. But to do that is to miss their form, which is as tightly structured as any well-written narrative in the Bible. And if you gloss over the Psalms, you'll also miss their content, which is as instructive as any of the theology in Paul's letters. The Psalms teach you of God's ways and of his character, and they teach you about yourself. Now, another confession. I tried to come up with three nice points for this sermon, but even as of yesterday afternoon, they just were not being helpful at all. The passage doesn't simply divide cleanly into three points. They would bleed into and blend with one another. So, if you're taking notes, and I know my wife probably is, I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you points, but I'm going to give you some lenses. Lenses through which to read the psalm that may be helpful. Each one of these verses describes either God's presence or God's pilgrims and or God's provision. God's presence, God's pilgrims, and or God's provision. We, God's pilgrims, must continually seek God, God's presence, in order to be truly blessed, God's provision. So we're going to go through these beautiful lyrics bit by bit. It's like an old favorite song where each time you listen to it, you hear something different, even though you're familiar with it. I did something different this week. I finally got my bike from my parents' house. They've been waiting for me to get all my old stuff. And I took a bike ride, and I just looped this psalm through and try to listen for any, anything new I could discern. Um, so this is, this is like that, uh, like an old favorite where you discover new things. Uh, I already mentioned the history of Korah's family. Even these headings at the top are part of our scripture, so I'll quickly draw your attention to this one. To the choir master, according to the Gittith. Literally, that means according to the wine press. And there's a footnote, at least in the ESV, that says this is probably a musical or liturgical term. To which I kind of react like, well, yeah, that makes sense. This is the musical and liturgical book for the nation of Israel. So I'm kind of a jerk, but it seems, it, it, you know, it's not obvious. You have to put those footnotes in so that we understand. Uh, it could be a number of things, though, according to the Giddith, that are pretty interesting to think about. Like I said, Giddith means wine press. So one commentator I read he assumes, well, the grape harvest coincided with the Hebrew Feast of Trumpets. So that could be one interpretation, the grape harvest, the wine press. It could be a nickname 
for some specific instrument that looks like a wine press, kind of like a high church washboard or something. It could be an instruction for the tempo of the music. And if you, but if you study the history of hymns, you would have to consider that according to the Giddith could be a specific melody that most people knew. That's a possibility. Because even in our English hymn books, which we don't have any here, but even in our hymn books we have lyrics that are written in very strict meters, very strict rhyme schemes, which allows you to use different melodies for the same lyrics. That's what we do sometimes with songs here. So maybe the wine press is just a name for a melody, but I'm speculating and it's time to move on. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now this way of addressing God, Lord of hosts, literally Yahweh Zabaot. It's repeated throughout this psalm and it's spaced at key moments. Uh, They make kind of musical sense. It gives structure to the psalm. So look with me. You might want to circle these if you're in the bulletin. You're able to draw all over this. But it's at the end of verse 1, Lord of hosts, at the end of verse 3, at the start of verse 8, and also again in verse 12. So it's easy to regard it as kind of a chorus, which divides the psalms into sections. Now let's consider the name itself. Each of these times the speaker uses Lord of hosts, Lord is translated into English from God's name for himself, Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts. You may have heard before that Yahweh is God's covenant-keeping name that he gave himself when revealing himself to various people, especially to Israel. It's based in the Hebrew verb, I am. So God's renown and his reputation for keeping his covenants, it's based on his very self, his very existence. He exists forever. He will exist forever. We're going to use some comparisons to illustrate some things in this psalm this morning. So here's, here's one. Remember in Romeo and Juliet, and everyone's head just came up. <laughs> Juliet tells Romeo when he is professing his love, Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon. She wants a better foundation for Romeo's love than something so undependable. The moon changes. Well, God is eternal and unchanging, so he depends on nothing and no one for his existence. So this name, Yahweh, means that he will keep his promises, he will keep his covenants as surely as he exists. You can bank all your hopes on this self-existent God, which the speaker does. But the speaker adds something. God is called here Lord of hosts. That is to say, God of armies, whether earthly or physical armies, The speaker recognizes that his nation's well-being as the chosen people of God was tied to God's being present with them and preserving them through wartime and peacetime. God of hosts. In Israel, the national and political identity, even its military identity, was inseparable from its religious identity. We would do well to remember this is not the case for God's people today. But this is the same God who has fought on behalf of his people throughout history. He dwelled with them. Verse 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The speaker is referring to the temple where God manifested his presence to Israel. 
While it's true that God's omnipresent everywhere at once, his presence was specially localized in the temple. Melissa read earlier about when the temple was dedicated and God's glory came down and filled it, causing the people of Israel to sing of God's steadfast love for them. And while this temple was certainly built beautifully, the speaker's not just calling it lovely for its own sake. His desire is for God himself. Look at verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This expression is intense. He longs and faints for the courts of Yahweh. The temple had multiple courts. Only certain people had access to certain courts, ranging from the innermost parts, which were only accessible to the high priest, to courts that were only suitable for people from the nation of Israel, and outer courts where even strangers and visitors could come and worship the God of Israel. But why is this desire to worship, why would it be so intense as to cause this longing to the point of fainting? It's because the speaker is not always able to worship at the temple. Since the worship of God in Israel is regulated by ceremony and it is mostly centered around the temple in Jerusalem, where the glory of God is localized, the worship was not accessible to many people without first undertaking a very long journey. So this psalm, the context for this psalm, is absence from the temple. It's about a pilgrimage. You see, there were three festivals throughout the year that took place in Jerusalem. These were feasts during which worshipers from all over the nation would come to the city. Maybe you have a yearly tradition that depends on a certain location to take place. An absence makes your heart grow fonder as you anticipate your return. Does that desire for that tradition transpose over into the worship of God? I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say it to myself and all of us to encourage us not to take worshiping God for granted. Don't take worship with your fellow Christians for granted. The the Israelites kept a feast to God three times a year. We keep the feast of the Lord's Supper every week. We get to do that. It's a benefit made available to us and instituted by Christ himself. We have fellowship with God himself, and it is unbound from a specific physical location. It's not this building. There's nothing special about this building. It's bound to his covenant community, this community that we call the church. It's us. The speaker longs for that time when he is going to be with God's people worshiping at the temple. Perhaps the closest thing we have to temples in our culture are sports and concert arenas. I mean, look at this picture real quick. You can barely see it. I should have turned the lights off. But you can see all the specks of light there. That's an arena during a concert. We definitely, in our culture, know all about worship. Even in a culture where many claim no knowledge of God, we sure know how to worship. This is, this is Heinz Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, why is this particular arena uh, lovely to me? Well, it's not for its own sake. I have good memories there with people who I love, people who are close to me. Just a quick story. A few years ago, I realized I was going to age out of American Idol auditions. (laughs) And I wanted to at least try it, just to say I'd done it. And so, of course, I didn't pick the year when it was in Secaucus, New Jersey, two hours away. I picked the time when it's in Pittsburgh. So my sisters, 
who are twins, we, we got in the car and we went out to Pittsburgh. And it was a fun trip. You can see there, that is sunrise. We waited like 14 hours to audition. It, it's a really terrible process if you ever go try out for any of those things. But there's, there's sunrise, there's the field, there's my sisters. We're getting our sign-in info there. But that, more about that arena later, but you can, you can just see it's not because of the arena, it's because of the memories. This is, what, this is the affection that the speaker has for the temple. Great things have happened there. He's experienced God there, someone he loves, someone he longs and faints for. You'll notice that in these first two verses, the voice switches from the second person, that is, speaking to God, to the third person speaking about God. This easily could have been a call and response type of psalm, much like our responsive calls to worship here, with certain lines for the leader and certain lines for the responders. And now, now the psalm seems to take an odd direction and describes birds nesting in the temple. Verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. This is once again an expression of desire. These birds live where the speaker longs to be, in the presence of God. And these verses also call to mind Jesus' words. You know, sparrows are not mentioned all that often throughout the Bible, but it recalls Jesus' words a little bit, where he tells us that if God is mindful of even the sparrows, of course he cares for us because we are infinitely more valuable than they. Jesus definitely knew this psalm, so perhaps this was in his mind when he preached about his Father's care for his people. Here's that name again, Lord of hosts. As I just said, this psalm switches from addressing God to speaking about him. Lord of hosts, my King and my God. This is speaking to God. And you know, you can, you can say and believe plenty of things about God, but only in a relationship do you believe and say things to Him. Are you a passive observer in worship? Or do you relate to God personally as a father and even as a friend? I've mentioned this before, but, you know, if you know me, I may have told you this story There was once a time I could only cling to objective truths about God. In the fall of 2008, I had a a terrible breakdown, which left me depressed for most of a year. And it was a spiritual depression, among other things, complicated by the fact that I had always doubted my personal relationship to God. See, I grew up in a heavenly, man-centered tradition. A tradition of faith that placed a lot of emphasis on the personal decision to ask Jesus into your heart. You may have heard that phrase before. For someone like me who is by nature very pensive and self-aware and prone to second-guessing and indecision, that brand of Christianity is downright poisonous. So these doubts were aggravated during that terrible year. While I was unsure whether my relationship with God was intact, Eventually, I figured, well, I'm not an atheist or any other religion. I was convinced of the truth of Christianity, but not confident in my own standing before God. So I could only affirm truthful things about him. At the very least, I could do that. When I first started attending Grace, that's where I was. But over time, the truth of the gospel of Christ overcame that focus on myself. 
that obsession with the genuineness of my faith, and I began to lean again on the object of my faith, God. And as I came to believe God's promises, God's promises, I could call God mine. You know, a week and a half ago, I took a road trip with Matt Maimoni. And many of you know him. His father, Rob, has been leading us this morning. Well, Matt and I, we drove all the way to Pittsburgh for cheap tickets to see you too. And through a fluke, we wound up about as close as you can get without standing in the crowd. <clears throat> we were very excited. We got our seats reassigned. So it was, a, it was a memorable night, for sure. Here's us in the outer courts. I look like an idiot. Uh, coincidentally, Bono happens to have a very high regard for the Psalms, and I commend to you a recent YouTube series called Beyond the Psalms, if you want to look at it later. He's, he and a professor from Fuller Seminary named David Taylor discussed the Psalms, and it's very fascinating. Now, why do I bring up you 2 and that road trip and that video series? Well, again, that arena Heinz Field is special, like I said, for the memories that I've made with people that I care about there. But I wanted to highlight the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. The difference between talking about the living God and being able to say, my God. See, I know enough about Bono to admire the causes that he champions and the regard he has for justice. And I certainly respect him as a musician. But I've never met him. My friend John has a different experience. John's a former colleague who teaches at Hawthorne Christian Academy in New Jersey. And he's also a wedding musician. And one day, out on a gig, he was at a hotel, and outside he spotted Bono, there with his bodyguards. And so, of course, he had to ask for a picture. And Bono obliged. Pretty cool for a musician to meet a musical hero. But here's the moment he goes from the Bono to my Bono. (laughs) John's got a different knowledge of Bono than I have. (laughs) Moving on. In verses 4 and 5, we have a pair of Blessed statements. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, he could be talking about the priests when he says, those who dwell in your house. He could be talking about the personnel who get their living from the temple, fellow Levites. But he's most likely speaking of the worshipers, of the pilgrims that come there, I also don't think it's a coincidence that the phrase ever singing your praise comes right after he's been describing birds. Because that phrase certainly describes birds, ever singing God's praise. Now verse 5. These blessed statements. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're not really formal pronouncements of blessings over the people they're describing. They're actually praises to God himself. And to demonstrate this, I was going to speak to the married women in the crowd, but instead, here's your token Father's Day tie-in. Let's say you're out, 
Maybe you're on a business trip away from the family, away from your spouse. Somebody during your trip starts hitting on you. They see your ring, that you're married. But despite that, they throw this into the conversation. Well, your wife is a lucky woman. Guess what? They're not really complimenting your wife, right? Now take away the shadiness of that scenario and bring it back to these blessed statements. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. It's not a pronouncement of blessing over those people. It's a praise to God himself for the benefits that he provides. These are actually praises to God. Your people are fortunate to dwell with you, to experience your, pressure, your, your presence and worship you in song. Your people are blessed to find their strength in you, God. God's pilgrims delight in getting to know God getting to God so much that they treasure the highways. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Highways to Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. But from what I understand, the city is simply inferred and added by the translators. See, the pilgrim's journey, they, they love it. They love it because of where they're going. The pilgrim's journey takes them through desert places. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Baca means tears or balsam trees, which grow in arid places. Here we see both the work done. Wait, now I know Nate is going to get on me. It's not balsam firs, Nate, balsam, balsam trees. It's a different kind of plant, all right? All right. Nate's a tree specialist. These balsam trees grow in arid places. We, we see both the work done by the pilgrims as well as God's provision for them. They make the desert a place of springs and God also grants them rain. Eventually, they get to where they're going, verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Again, use a bit of imagination and contrast to understand what this really means. It's easy to pass over that phrase, strength to strength. Oh, that's nice. But imagine if it had said they go from strength to faltering or they go from strength to cowardice. No, they go from strength to strength and not one is lost on the way to the final destination as we see in the second part of verse 7. Each one appears before God in Zion. No one's lost. Look at the benediction from the book of Jude. It's on the last page of your bulletin. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We will be kept from stumbling and presented. We will appear before God. Each one appears before God in Zion. And now the psalm turns to a prayer, a request in verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. I just realized as I read this before, I totally skipped the word Selah, as it appears, and I'm sorry for that. That's another uh, liturgical term or musical term. It may mean a pause, time to reflect. It may be more musical, like a repeat. But this is a prayer to God. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed up until now, he has addressed God, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Zabaot. Here in verse 8, he calls him Yahweh Elohim Zabaot. 
Lord God of hosts. Well, Yahweh is God's covenant name, like we said, which he gave to himself. Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. And it's worth noting that it's a plural form of the word. So the understanding of the one true God as existing in multiple persons, it's built right into how they address him. Earlier in verse 3, the speaker called God, my king. Well, now he asks God to regard Israel's earthly king, who's referred to as our shield and your anointed. Why? Because the spiritual life of the nation is dependent on the strength of her government. The well-being of the king and the nation's independence is tied to the worship of God. Look at, the, look at what begins verse 10. He ties them together with the word for. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. In other words, please hear me and show favor to our king, for I love worshiping you at the temple, God. He knows that the government is directly responsible for making this worship possible. There's important, an important difference here to reiterate. Because God's glory dwelled at this specific physical location and the worship was done there, the health of the worship, so to speak, was tied to political protection. That is not the case for us. We should be thankful, certainly, to live in a country where we can be worshiping here together, out in the open, but those freedoms could easily be taken away, as they were for the Israelites at various times. Israel went into exile, captivity, they were conquered by other empires. Right now, we are some privileged pilgrims, maybe the most privileged to ever exist in history, especially all of us Christians here in America. But life is still hard. I'm sure some of you come this morning with heavy hearts. You're in a desert place, a valley of tears all of your own. It's not just arrogance about our accomplishments or our relationships or our possessions that cause us to forget God and his blessings. We also experience profound sadness and profound loss, which can cause us to lose sight of God. We have real trouble in this world on our pilgrimage through it. Sometimes we sing here Revelation song. And one of those lyrics refers to God as my everything, which is another way to say that our strength is in God. Is that true for you? even in times of sadness and loss? Is God your all, both when you seem to have everything and when you have nothing left but him? What place in your life does he really occupy? Can you say along with David in Psalm 16, can you say to God, I have no good apart from you? You know, I love to daydream, but I also tend to imagine terrible, terrible scenarios, maybe worst case scenarios, and maybe you will call those day nightmares. And in one day nightmare, I developed throat cancer, rendering my larynx completely non-functional. Now for me, as someone who derives incredible pleasure from singing and from songwriting, that might be worse than you know, other forms of cancer, like prostate cancer that renders something totally else non-functional. And yep, I just went there in church, so let's move on before everyone catches up. Anyway, I was telling you about my trip with Matt Maimoni. He recently graduated from Juilliard, and he's a great pianist. We both enjoy songwriting and directing church music, but as we traveled on our little bro road trip, we were talking about God's place in our lives. And I decided to allow Matt to participate in a bit of my mental torture. 
I think we were like passing、uh, a Japanese restaurant or something, which put a thought in my head, and I said, "Okay, Matt, a guy comes out of this restaurant right here with a samurai sword and slices both hands off. Now what?" Well, understandably, this is a very troubling thought to Matt. At least as troubling as when I imagine never singing again. So, what's a similar thing for you? What calling or ability or relationship do you have that occupies such a place in your life? And yes, just so you know, one of my day nightmares also is losing Hannah Faye. If I lost my wife, would God still be my solace? Can you say with Job, "Though he slay me, I will hope in him"? Look at how the speaker esteems God. Verse ten: For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now it's good to know something about these sons of Korah. They were musicians and actual doorkeepers in the temple. That was their job. And here it almost sounds like a doorkeeper in the temple is like a lowly job, but it's not. It's actually a good official job to have. It's not talking about that here. It's the idea is more that he would rather be in the temple when it's standing room only, and he's pushed to the door than be out of fellowship with God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And 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 wickedness here, it's not talking necessarily about people who plot evil things, not villains, but simply those who choose to stay home rather than worship God in His temple at the proper time. They don't consider God their highest good. Why would he rather be in the temple? Because God is his source for everything good. Look at verse eleven. It describes this amazing promise of God's provision for his pilgrims. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is a sun and shield. There's a commentator named Derek Kidner, and he has some great words for us about these verses. Listen to this. The two figures for what God can be to His followers, both sun and shield, picture vividly all that is outgoing and positive, and all that is protective. The answer to fear and defeat, but a soldier's answer. God is all that is positive and protective for His people. You remember that earlier the psalm referred to Israel's human king as a shield. Well, God is the power behind the king's power. He's the protection behind the king's protection. God is a sun and shield. It's Yahweh who bestows favor and honor. Some other translations render this grace and glory, and those themes were still to be fully expressed as Scripture and redemptive history went on. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Can that be true? Well, we have other promises. Like in Romans chapter eight, where we learn that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love Him. But is loving God a rule for us to follow? It says, "No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly." Well, in order to benefit from this promise, do I have to painstakingly make sure that I walk uprightly? I told you before, I'm pensive and self-analytical. I'm prone to perfectionism. So, if being blessed by God depends on my keeping all the rules just right, that is not good news to me. I will have another breakdown living like that. No, 
This psalm is centered on God, and it points us to his son. The central focus of all of history, Jesus, who would have known this psalm as all Jewish boys did. Jesus, who as a boy longed so much to be in his father's house that he gave his parents a heart attack. They were traveling home from one of these festivals. They couldn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem and searched for him for three days. And sure enough, they finally found him in the temple. Why would you not look there first? They they finally found him, learning from the teachers, asking them questions. And everyone was amazed with Jesus' understanding and his answers, even as a boy. This is Jesus who, as a man, wept for Jerusalem and the stubbornness of God's people. He longed for the people of God to long for the courts of God. And as a nation, they were not willing. Jesus walked truly uprightly. He lived as you and I should have. He lived in a way that you can't. He was perfectly obedient to his Father. And then he died the death that we all deserve, taking sin upon himself as a substitute for us, as if he had been guilty. Jesus' cry of, My God, my God, was unlike any other personal address to God in all of history. It was made as one who had spent all of eternity past in perfect fellowship with God as part of the Trinity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship was severed for us. He was obedient unto death. And then after three days, his father raised him from the dead. He rules now at the right hand of God. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. If you believe that, you have a new heart, a heart that yearns to walk uprightly. Your disposition toward God is delight. You turn away from wickedness. If you're God's child, that's now your natural inclination. Yes, we still sin during this pilgrimage, but we don't dwell in it. We dwell with God, and he dwells with his people, not in a temple, but in them. He takes up residence within us. Yet we don't see him now. We still look forward to that day described in Revelation when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We too are on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that will have no need of a temple. Look and listen to these words from the Apostle John's revelation about our future with God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. They will see his face. Ultimately, God's blessing to those who walk uprightly will be the gift of himself. So what have we learned here this morning from the psalm? We've seen that dwelling with God and worshiping with his people, it's the speaker's highest joy. It's his best case scenario. Is that your definition of even an okay scenario? Has your heart been transformed to love God and his people in this way? Or do you neglect fellowship with God and his people, the blessings that are yours in Christ. It's true that God dwells in you, but dwelling with him is not a solo endeavor. Pilgrims journey together. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together, so don't take it for granted. Don't deprive yourself. You have a pretty short journey compared to these pilgrims, and your brothers and sisters want to see you, they want to worship with you, they want to encourage you. Maybe you're here or you don't belong to God. You're not among those pilgrims. I urge you to bank your hope on God, all that he is for you in Christ. Jesus shows us who God is in his life and in his sacrifice. So trust him. Life is somehow short and long at the same time, and it can be arduous. Don't meander from strength to faltering or strength to cowardice. Be one of the ones who go from strength to strength, who will appear before God in the new Jerusalem. Be one of the ones spoken about in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So trust in him. It's not that we seek God for new blessings to be given necessarily, though they are. God does bless his people with good things here on earth. But it's rather that we learn to see more and more the ultimate blessing of himself that God has already given us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, these psalms that get at our hearts in a different way. We pray that you would work these truths in our hearts, that we would love you, that we would, we would seek to dwell with you, that we, we would seek your presence and, and enjoy your presence that we have because of your Son and your Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.